Well, we continue this morning in the book of Judges. We are in chapter 5, and we're looking at the song of Deborah and Barak. We're going to pick up this morning at verse 9. We've basically covered the first stanza, and we're going to get into the second stanza um, now. And recall from uh, our introduction into the, um, the song of, of Deborah and Barak in Judges chapter 5, that Deborah is the primary singer. Uh, in this. It is, it is a multi-voiced song. So there are other voices that are in it, but she is primary. Barak, as in the account of uh, the battle in chapter 4, their, their war against Sisera, Barak has a secondary role. So Deborah sings of her role in the deliverance of Israel, but she makes no mention of the activities to which she engages in as a judge of Israel. Now, we, we touched on this role of judges this morning at the um, Sunday school hour that Pastor Steve is teaching. And if you were unable to make that, I encourage you to come out. It was a wonderful teaching, and it was wonderful participation um, from our brethren here. There was quite a bit of question and answer, um, and uh, it's, it's edifying to me to hear such um, really good thinking and and really deep, clear thoughts on what Scripture says from our brothers and sisters here. So I encourage you, if you you haven't been coming, to to try to make it a point of, of, of joining us. So Deborah, she's not making any mention in the song of her role as a judge, which is adjudicating disputes in Israel. And she doesn't sing about um, any oracles that she receives from God. Now, as we go through this, I want you to notice that Deborah is epitomizing the traits and the characteristics of a good leader. She's not pointing to herself. She is pointing to others. And interestingly, we saw this last week, and I wanted to, to touch on it, uh, because it'll come up again as we go through this. We're not going to finish the song of Deborah and Barak today. It'll, t- it'll take uh, a part three. We're in part two. But Deborah mentions that she is a mother of Israel. Now, this stands in contrast to what we're going to see at the end of the song when we see the mother of Sisera appear in the song. So we have this contrast, this juxtaposition of these two mothers. So this mother of Israel sings of the people of Israel and the esteem that the people of Israel have earned through their actions or the dishonor some have earned through their inaction. Now when you read commentaries about this, there there are those who will say that Deborah is song is about pride in Israel. I think we should think about that for a moment because I think I find that a bit problematic. Should there be pride in those who respond properly to the call to fight Sisera, the commander of the armies of the Canaanite, and bring victory to Israel? 
Is pride a proper response to victory? Now, perhaps I'm making more out of this than I should, but it is the role of a preacher to, to, to see things in the text that, that are good to draw out and to build a lesson upon. And I think this is one of them. Um, the, the idea of pride, even the word pride in our day and age, rolls very easily off of our tongue. It's ever-present in our culture. We express our pride in people and in concepts. It's just a matter of routine that we, that we talk of being proud, that we express pride in many different forms. Now, nowadays, I find it interesting that just being proud isn't enough. No, people are now super proud. So that's better than proud. Unless we remember that the Bible teaches very clearly that what is pride but sin? So we're speaking of a sin as it's a good thing. I think this is problematic for the people of God. We teach our children to be proud because we do not want them lacking in self-esteem. And according to our popular culture, low self-esteem is an ever-present and pressing danger upon the generations to come. Because everyone must feel good about everything they do. We make no mention of sin in that, or even in the classical sense, what used to be referred to as virtues. No, those are all shoved aside because we must be proud in our actions. However, what does the Word of God reveal about us but that we are fallen creatures? And that which comes naturally, which we are proud of now, should present a problem to us. And as far as our children go, when we worry about their low self-esteem, should we be surprised later when they are unable to handle any adversity and they rely on mom and dad to fight their battles for them? The one thing I found very shocking when uh, I was in law enforcement is I moved up into management and command ranks and I had to evaluate my subordinates. I had to write evaluations on employees. I had to write the evaluations that supervisors would write, and they would make their way up the chain of command. But on several occasions, I had mothers of adult employees call me because they were unhappy about their child's evaluation. Now imagine that. Now these weren't police officers' moms that called. I think police officers' moms understand that they're their son or daughter has a very difficult job. These were civilian employees who were very, very important to the police department. I don't minimize their role because the police department would not function without the support personnel. But I had on a couple occasions, I had moms call me up because of the less than stellar evaluation that their child had received, their adult child had received in their full-time employment working for a municipal government in a law enforcement department. I was taken aback, you might say. Of course, with moms like that, you have to be very careful not to add fuel to the fire <laughs> because they will not stop. It'll just go up the chain of command, and pretty soon I'll be talking to the chief, and the chief will be talking to the city manager, and the city manager will be talking to the city council. So anyway, here's where we come to with this idea of low self-esteem. We have adults that cannot stand on their own two feet. 
Well, I'm getting on a, a bit on a rabbit trail here, so let's come back. Let's talk about what God's word has to say about human pride. The Bible speaks of pride as an infectious and insidious sin. It destroys everything it touches, and it invites God's judgment onto us. You might say that pride is the defining sin of man, and it's been argued that it is the first sin. And we read in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, there's a taunt against the king of Babylon. And in this taunt against this human tyrant, the Lord said, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will make myself like the most high. Now that's the epitome of pride, placing yourself above God. And in Ezekiel chapter 28, there's a prophecy against the prince of Tyre where God says, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, then the oracle goes on with judgment. And both of these pronouncements also target a divine tyrant, Satan. At the same time, they speak of a human tyrant. So we see this human sin coupled with the sin of the first rebel against God, Satan. And ultimately, our pride leads us to something that is very troubling. It leads to self-glorification and the turning of our hearts from the true God to focus on ourself and to focus on other gods with a little g. And this is a situation that apostate Israel finds itself in, turns itself back towards again and again in the book of Judges and through the rest of the Old Testament, not just Judges. They reject the Lord God, the true God, and lust after these pagan gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. This is, this is, there's pride involved in this because these pagan gods are controllable by humans. They could be summoned as a human desire. And these gods granted wishes, providing that their own human-like desires were met and satisfied by their worshipers. So in this, we can see that pride and adultery are linked. And this is why pride is corrosive to covenant. Covenant, which is such an important word in the Old Testament and the new. We are under covenant. We are covenant people. And what does the Bible have to say about all of this? What does it result in? It tells us that God will dismantle all that is prideful. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, the day of the Lord. Those who are proud and lofty will see and face judgment on that day. We're told that God detests pride. Proverbs 8.13 Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Now many Christians do not like and shy away from any passage that talks about God hating something. They want to focus on God loving. Now for God to declare he hates something, that something must be an abomination in his sight. And that's exactly what pride is. 
And God will ultimately judge pride in Ezekiel 17.24. In allegorical language, the prophet writes, And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord and I have spoken and I will do it. The trees obviously are standing in the place of humans and human activity. And the trees that are large and beautiful and green and flourishing are the prideful humans. And those that are more like the, the shrubbery that, that stands in the shadows of the mighty uh, cedars are the low and humble, the modest people of God. And God manifested in the flesh as Jesus Christ, to whom all glory rightfully belongs, provides for us an example, not of pride, but of humility, the opposite of pride. In Philippians 2.8, Paul writes, in being found in human form, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul warns us that proud and self-sufficient people will not make it into the kingdom of heaven. We know that it is not by our works that we are justified. Paul speaks of this very clearly in the first chapter of Romans. And James cautions against pride. In chapter 4 of his letter, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. And John declares that the pride of life, namely lust for advantage and status, is of the world. That one hits home because we want to be successful. We want to achieve. We want to do everything that we are to do as to unto the Lord. But you see, the motivation, if we're doing it unto the Lord, is not focusing on ourselves. It's not making ourselves be in the spotlight. And this is what I want you to see as Deborah sings this song, that Deborah does not put herself in the spotlight. She puts others there. So we can see that Scripture clearly warns us against pride and describes it as sin. <clears throat> and so I think we should more accurately see that Deborah is not singing about being proud of Israel. She's singing in praise of the volunteers of Israel rather than in pride. And the praise of others actually guards us from pride in ourselves when we turn our attention outward from ourselves. So Deborah's praise, like I said, points away from herself and to the commanders and the warriors of Israel that answered Barak's call to arms. And more importantly, she points to the Lord God, whom she praises and attributes their success to. And that's key right there. So am I making too much out of one word, pride or praise? Isn't the idea the same, one might ask? What's behind this word is what counts, not the word itself. Well, I would argue that we need to discipline our minds about this. We can get really sloppy. In, in this present day, our speech is so imprecise. We say things and we mean something else because we're just not trained to speak accurately anymore. We're just speaking in, in broad categories most of the time. And then we have a lot of explaining to do, don't we, later when we find out that our speech was mistaken for something else. 
Think about Paul in his letter to the Philippians, in, in his famous verse in chapter 4, verse 8. He says to think about whatever is true. It's a wonderful verse, and I've heard many of you speak about what it means to you, how important that is, um, that, that instruction, as it should be. But think about this. Paul is not referring to true as being everything that is a brute fact in the world. He's not saying think about stuff that is, in fact, true. Paul is not counseling us to think about facts. Pride is a fact. It's a sin. But he's not telling us to think about that. No, he's pointing, I think, ultimately to Jesus Christ who said, I am the truth. Our tongues and our speech are directly connected to our minds. If we speak of a sin when we mean something other than that sin, we are training our minds, I would say, to accept that sin. Because the word pride and proud rolls off my tongue so much that then I, I lose sight, intellectually speaking, and even emotionally speaking, I lose sight of the fact that it is a sin, that I must guard against it. And we're doing damage to our ability to use discernment. God grants that to his people, this discernment. And we, we, we dull the edge of that blade by doing this. So pointing to others' success when they've achieved such is, like I said, the trait of a good leader. There's a well-known 12th century church leader who put it this way. I think it's very good. It is no great thing to be humble when you are brought low, but to be humble when you are praised is a rare and great attainment. So we should be gracious when we receive praise and praise God for it, because ultimately God is the one to be praised. So let's look at the praises of Israel that Deborah sings about in Judges 4, verses 9 through 11, we're going to look at. Follow along with me in your Bibles as I read here. Deborah sings, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. So here Deborah is praising those who answered the call to arms when she told Barak, get up, get up, come on, sound the trumpet, it's time. The Lord has determined this is the time. And Barak does what he's told and, and becomes the military leader that God has raised him up to be. There are those that responded, and she's praising them. In the first part of verse 9, she praises the highest ranking officials, the commanders of Israel. And then the second half of that verse, she praises the common men in the ranks, referred to as the people, a much wider group than the first, the commanders. These are the volunteer militia of Israel. Because remember, Israel does not have a professional army. There is no warrior caste. There is no warrior class in Israelite society. These are men that have families, that have flocks, that have crops. 
that perhaps are skilled craftsmen that answer the call. So there's a parallelism that's going on here, which, which Hebrew literature loves. And these first two lines about these two groups, although they differ in identity in their social status, they are joined together in purpose. The leaders and the troops are united in their response. And Deborah attributes this unity to the one and only Lord God of Israel, the only one who can accomplish this, who can bring these diverse people together. She praises God in the last part of verse 9. Bless the Lord, she says. So she's pointing at the Lord. This is, this, is, this is response, and the unity amongst all of these men is the doing of the Lord. Bless him for this. Now, verse 10 is very similar to verse 9. Again, we have two classes of people being distinguished here. Those who ride on white donkeys and those who walk by the way. But these two categories are not the same as in verse 9. Not quite the same. Not so much leaders and, and the followers, the people now. They're more in categories of the rich and others who are not rich. While the riders of the donkeys, the white female donkeys, who sit on saddle blankets of fine carpet, are obviously rich, the others who walk by the way, who, don't, who can't afford a white she-donkey, who do not have you know, a, a fine carpet that they can throw on the back of an animal to sit on, the ones who have to tread in the dust by foot, they're not necessarily the poor. We're not, so we're not, she's not comparing rich to poor. She's comparing the rich to people like us, others, the, the vast majority of people, which would include poor people, um, but not just the poor. Right? That's what we should see. The ordinary people, basically, is what she's talking. Now, there's something interesting in verse 10 that we might easily miss. It contains in uh, an exhortation. The Hebrew word uh, exhorting is, is sihu. Now, if you're following along in the ESV, which I'm reading out of, that's, that's translated tell of it. If you're in the New King James, it's translated talk about it. And in the NIV, it's translated, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, the New King James is speak. It's the, uh, the Lexham English Bible has talk about it, the NIV consider. So there's a difference in placement uh, of this um, exhortation depending on which translation you're in, which, you know, is interesting, but, you know, um, we won't get into it. I just wanted to point that out because if, as you're following along, you may see it at the, at, the, at the back end of this verse rather than at the front end. Um, but this exhortation hints at something that both of these groups whether they're the commanders or the people or those on white donkeys or those walking on foot, something that all of these people might do, which is wrong. That is simply to get on with their lives as though nothing notable has happened, to just continue on after this great, tremendous, and unexpected victory. In effect, what Deborah's doing is she's issuing a call to join in the song that this is something that we need to sing about. And what has happened makes it inappropriate for anyone, rich or ordinary, to merely go on riding their donkey or walking down the road or sitting 
on carpeted saddles or treading in the dust. What the Lord has done is what Deborah's saying is worthy of a pause in life to lift up their voices in praise of him who has rescued Israel again. And we reflect that today, brethren, when we gather on the Lord's day. We pause in our life to lift up our voices to the Lord who has rescued us from the sin in Satan's kingdom, just like Israel is rescued from the oppressor, Sisera. This brings us to our first point. God's deliverance of his people unites us in a bond that is stronger than anything else in human experience. Have you ever had an epiphany? Epiphany where where suddenly God's truth just becomes blindingly clear to you, something that you didn't see before. And, And it's like a flash of lightning where, boom, it hits you, and you realize something that you've missed. I had this happen to me when I was a new Christian. I was a a very young police officer. I was working uniform patrol at the time. And I had just given my heart to Christ. The Lord made himself very real to me. I realized he was my Lord and Savior. And, of course, you know, life goes on. I go back to work. And back in those days, we worked two-man patrol cars. And I was working a night shift. I was working with my partner. We were working in a, uh, a north district, which uh, we were assigned to an area that was called the Islands. It was, it was blood uh, gang territory. And this partner, um, here's the thing I've got to explain about police work. <clears throat> you, you have a partner. and Where I work, we had the same partner day in and day out. We had the same days off. I spent 10 hours, I worked 10-hour shifts, 10 hours a day in this radio car with this guy, you know, racing all over town, you know, at warp speed, fighting with bad guys, arresting bad guys, chasing bad guys, eating meals together, drinking coffee as we drive around, talking. There was an incredible closeness that you get with this partner. You know him, and he knows you better than anyone else, better probably even than your wives know you, because you don't get to spend that much time with your wife. So we're on patrol. We're going down this residential street. It's dark, and there's this guy walking down the sidewalk. He's not doing anything wrong, so there's no reason that we stop and talk to him. We cruise by him, and I take a look at him just, you know, to see what, what, are you, what is he up to. He's out of... Uh, at the, on the sidewalk pretty late, but nothing appears unusual. And then it hits me. If that man is a Christian, he is a closer brother to me than my partner. The man whose life, who carries my life in his hand. The man who will take a bullet for me and I will take a bullet for him. God has united me with strangers in a bond that is closer than anything I've experienced. And the bond of partners in police work is very, very strong. That was an epiphany. That told me about the power that God brings to the body of Christ, to the church, to his people. 
Think about that. We gather together every Sunday. And although we don't know each other, perhaps intimately, like I knew Greg in this radio car, there's a closeness that we share that you're not going to find with your relatives, with your friends that are not Christians. Yet, remember that there's always that potentiality there. We do not know who God's elect is. But this unity is a wonderful thing. And this is what Deborah's singing about, and it is something to sing about. It's wonderful. This bond that transcends every identity that our culture demands to be recognized. We live in an age of identity politics, they say. It's all about what you look like. But this bond is something that can't be seen, can it? Just like that guy walking down the sidewalk at at 1 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't tell whether he was a Christian or not, but he very well could have been. I could tell other things about him, but those things were immaterial. They're irrelevant. This bond is superior, like I said, to everything else that makes us who we are. And Deborah is pointing out to the Israelites that all were delivered. Not just the important and the wealthy. Not even the ordinary. The rank and the file were rescued. But even the ordinary, I should say, were rescued from the evil oppressor. Going on, Deborah says in verse 11, To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of the villagers in Israel. So here we see in, the, in, in, um, in verse 11, um, the, and I'm just reading uh, the first three-fourths of the verse because the end of the verse seems to break off into uh, a different subject, so we're going to treat that separately. Um, so here we see the rejoicing of the victory spreads throughout Israel. So Deborah's exhortation has the desired result. And why is this celebrating at the watering places. Well, we must remember, this is a largely pastoral society. This is where people gathered to come water their flocks. The flocks needed watering at certain times of the day. It's like, it's like the coffee machine at the workplace, you know, coffee break time. Or the, if you were to live in a rural village, you know, if you, if you um, like in the Mediterranean uh, uh, locales, there's, you know, there's a, there's a village, village market place where people gather they would buy they buy their food every day you know they don't go to the grocery store and stock up for two weeks it's a place where they go and they socialize and and, um so these herdsmen as they congregate they're talking and they're singing because herdsmen sing when you're out alone you know with uh with sheep or cows they're just like you know our cowboys and in our history you know they would They would sing to their cattle to keep them calm and to pass the time. They're at the watering holes or at the springs or the pools. And they're talking about what happened and they're singing. They're joining in. And of whom and what do they sing of? It's the Lord that they're singing of. And his people living in the villages of Israel. These are the ones to whom the victory is attributed. By the power of the Lord, the everyday man from the village defeated a force of 900 iron chariots. This was unheard of. It was unexpected. 
Now, as we move on, the last part, last sentence in verse 11 through 23, <clears throat> before we read it, I want to talk a little bit about it so you can, you can have your eyes uh, open to see what I want you to see. Now, this is the second major section of the song. And in this section, we see the contrast between the daring warriors from Israel's villages and the cautious people who are hesitant in their security that they prize above all else or hesitant to respond to the call. In the previous section of the song, pays attention to what Yahweh did, but this section is entirely focused on the people of Yahweh and their response. Now this is, this is key for us to see that, that God works through his people, that we have responsibility as people. We have responsibility to respond to God's commands, to God's call. We're not fatalists like some major world religions. If, if, if God wills it, it will happen, and we just sit back and don't do anything. The tribes who valiantly answered the call to arms or praise. These tribes are Ephraim, Benjamin. Um, it says uh, there's a, a, the, the tribe of Manasseh is referred to as Makir. Makir is uh, the son of Manasseh in numbers, but it's, 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 the, it's the western half of the tribe of Manasseh that's being referred to, to Zebulon, to Issachar, to Naphtali. And the tribes who did not respond are called out in perplexed scorn for their failure. And those tribes are Reuben, the senior son, Gad and the Transjordan half of Manasseh, those that are east of the Jordan River, the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Asher. So let's read verse 11d through 16. Deborah sings, Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then march down the remnant of the noble. See, here's the praise for the valiant-hearted. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. The mighty is the feared Canaanites. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, down to the plain of Jezreel from Mount Tabor, is what, what, what we're seeing here. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulon, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. So we're seeing leadership from the tribes of Manasseh, Zebulon, and Issachar. Leadership is so important. And into the valley they rushed at his heels, charging down the mountain. Barak leads the charge, and they're following their leader. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, stayed by his landings. Zebulon is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. So we hear about the leadership of Manasseh, Zebulon, and Issachar. They're examples of decisiveness in action. But there's a shift in the second half of verse 15, continues on to verse 16, regarding 
the tribe of Reuben. And again, what's, what's, say, what is, what, what's the, the singing about Reuben here? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. This great searchings of heart, we see it brackets the verses about Reuben's failure. Reuben heard the call. It wasn't that Reuben didn't think about coming to Mount Tabor. No, the Reubenites discussed the matter thoroughly. But it wasn't a good time to leave the sheep. No, it wasn't. Sarcasm drips from the lyrics that Deborah writes here. Reuben had heart-searching meetings over what they should do. This is juxtapositioned against the tribes who step boldly into leadership roles. You can imagine Reuben, the tribesmen meeting. Should we go or not? Eh, who'll care for our flocks if we go? If no one cares for our flocks, who will provide for our families? That's right, that's right. Our families are our responsibility. We have to consider that. I know Cicera is evil, but I have a responsibility to my family first. The songstress asked them, how could you just sit there in peace, tending your flocks while others fight for you? And the parting shot at the end of verse 16 about Reuben again experiencing great searchings of heart. This is this, this last part, the second great searching of Reuben, is not about whether or not to answer the call to Yahweh. They've made that decision. No, we need to stay home and take care of you know, our business. No, this is the curse upon the cowardly that this great searching of heart will return for the rest of their lives and into subsequent generations. They will remember that they had failed the Lord their God that they had refused the call of the Lord their God, that they had refused to join in battle with their fellow tribesmen from Israel. They will never forget this. They can't escape it. Their moral failure is too great. There's nothing worse than living with a moral failure. They chose selfishness when the Lord called them to sacrifice. This is a danger that each of us face, especially in the time and the place we live in, where we have so much as far as comfort goes. We become very used to it. We become attached to it. And similarly, in the song, the tribes in Gilead, the land beyond the Jordan, Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, verse 17 says they stayed beyond the Jordan. Apparently, it was too far for them to travel. Eh, I don't think we can get there in time. We've got to go across this river. <sighs> no, I think the other guys got it. Dan and Asher were more concerned with profitable maritime trade. Their businesses took precedence over obedience to God. Hey, we got these shipments coming in. If we're not here, who's going to take care of them? We've got to see that the ships are offloaded. We've got to get this stuff to marketplace. You know, we're on, a, we're on this time basis. You know, we've got this cycle that we've got to keep up with. The fact that these verses are immediately followed 
by Zebulon and Naphtali who risked their lives to the death on the heights of the field is a poetic way of saying that these other tribes are cowards. Deborah's being very bold about this. She puts us right in the middle between the decisive action of those who engage in leadership and the tribes who risk their lives in the battle. She talks about these men who sit it out, who have excuses for themselves. This brings us to the second point. The world and its things can be a great hindrance to God's people. The call of gain and worldly interests is louder in the ears of many than the trumpet blast of the Lord's calling. That's what we're seeing here in the Song of Deborah. And you, who are beloved of God, are surrounded by worldlings, those whose primary and often only concern is of the temporal and material of this present age. And this can, this can affect us. We can, we can be influenced greatly by this. We must recognize that, each and every one of us. And this was a topic that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, addressed many times, many times. Most people, when they hear the gospel message, will be at some point more concerned with the cares and burdens of life. We see this illustrated in the parable, in our Lord's parable of the sower and the soils. And Jesus very succinctly told those who hated him, you are of this world, I am not of this world. He made a very distinct divide between himself and those who were opposed. And he very clearly told them the consequences for not answering his call. Unless you believe that I am he, that is God come in human flesh, you will die in your sins. Those that don't answer that call will be like Reuben. There'll be plenty of time for them to sit and search their hearts in eternity about why they did not respond to this call of the gospel, this call of God the Son. You will die in your sins. That means bearing full and total responsibility for every violation of God's law that you committed in your lifetime. You will be required to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and answer for each and every sin. That's a burden that none of us can carry. None of us can shoulder that. And I thank the Lord that those of us who are in Christ do not have to do that. We do not have to shudder at the thought of answering for those things because Christ has answered for us. And if you are not in Christ and you are being called by Christ, if you are hearing these words now, consider this, that Christ gladly and lovingly will take on this burden from you. Only Jesus can take this debt from us and pay its complete and full satisfaction. Think about that. What do our possessions or our businesses have to do with eternal destiny? Jesus was invited, we're told in the Gospels, to the home of one of the rulers of the sect of the Pharisees. 
And whilst at the table, reclining at the dining table, he told them a story, which our Lord loved to do, and a great storyteller he was. And he tells this story very appropriately about a man who gave a great banquet and invited many people. Now Jesus here is speaking, it's a parable, he's speaking about something else, a truth that is not apparent in the story unless your ears open to it. He's talking about God in the kingdom of heaven in the guise of this man giving a great banquet. And this man sent his servants. Well, these servants, we know, are the prophets. They're the apostles. They're the preachers of the gospel through the ages. He sent out his servants to call the people to the feast, which was now ready. Come join the feast. But wouldn't you know it? Everybody was busy. They didn't have time. They made excuses. The first one says, I've Bought a field and must see to it. Please excuse me. The other says, I bought five yokes of oxen and I must tend to them. Please excuse me. Another one says, I've married a wife and you know how that is, so I can't come. What is it if we sit on an ash heap when the angels come to gather us to the feast as opposed to sitting counting our money and have them pass us by? Where would you rather be? I know where I'd rather be. I'd be on the ash heap. But I've got to be honest with you. There's a part of me that's like, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to, I'd like to have the money and, and get invited. You know, I, I, do I have to give up one or both? Well, if the Lord calls us, we do. Perhaps, perhaps we're not called to give up what little material possessions we have. That's, that's the Lord's prerogative, is it not? So I'm not saying that if you have material things, you're a sinner and you're not going to be invited to the great feast. That's not what our Lord is saying in the parable. He's saying that there's a choice that these men made. And when you are offered that choice, you will know what it is. There's a time in my life where I was offered that choice. Perhaps many of you have had times in your life where you were offered that choice. It was do this and prosper or be faithful to the Lord. And I pray, God, that we all make the proper choice. Now the song turns to the battle itself in verses 19 through 23. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan by Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. So these first two lines in verse 19 are what we call uh, chiasm. They, they play off each other. The kings... Oh, the first line expand into the kings of Canaan in the second. Now, this, the kings, plural, is unexpected here. We only read about one king in this battle, and that's Jabin. And he doesn't even really play a part. So what's going on? Who are these other kings? <clears throat> well, we have to think about the material world, the physical world, and the spiritual battle going on together here. That's, I think, what we're seeing. Jabin of Deborah's time really was nowhere nearly as powerful as his predecessors, but he epitomized Canaanite kingship. And this is expressed in the poetry of the song through the transformation of the battle between Barak and Sisera. It's transformed into a great final showdown between heaven and earth, between Yahweh and the kings of Canaan. What we're seeing is a battle between Christ's kingdom and the kingdom of Satan acted out on 
the plains of Jezreel at the time of Barak and Deborah. And she says they got no spoils of silver. So in other words, there was no plunder for the Canaanites. They expected to strip the dead bodies and loot the Israelite settlements. They had no doubt about their victory. They believed the battle was all but won. It must speak of the Canaanites. In a war declared by God, what we might call a holy war, in the promised land, Israel was prohibited from taking property. The Israelite warriors would not loot the dead. They would be in guilty of a great sin if they would have done that. They would have been struck down dead by the Lord. Everything gained in a battle in the, holy, in, excuse me, in the promised land was the Lord's and the Lord's alone. And in verse 20, we read, From heaven the stars fought from their courses. They fought against Sisera. See how the battle against Sisera is path, painted in, a, in cosmic proportions? Angelic forces, the stars, have a part in this fight. In verse 21, here we, here we get the clue. We get the information as to how 900 chariots of iron were defeated by infantrymen. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. This is a parenthesis, this last part, by, uh, probably by Barak. Barak is joining in here. Basically what Barak is saying, uh, march on, my soul, with might, is like, I'm not stopping. The Lord has given us victory. I am not going to rest on my laurels. I will fight for the Lord the rest of my days. So in the, in the account of the battle back in chapter 4, we're told, in verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and all his army before Barak. But we're not told how he's routed in chapter 4. Here we are. They're swept away by a torrent. Sounds like the great deluge, the flood, doesn't it? Sweeping away the evil. Now in the song, we learn how the Lord accomplished this stunning turnaround. In verse 20, Yahweh deploys the stars against Sisera. The Canaanites, in their religion, they thought of the stars as heavenly powers that controlled the weather. Here they are pictured as a heavenly army which fight against Sisera through the means of a flash flood. See how, how God twists on its head this pagan idea of what the stars are all about? Oh, <laughs> you think the stars control the weather? Those things that I created, I'll show you who controls the weather. Pawoosh! And there they go. So a huge downpour apparently occurs. There's a flash flood in the mountain catchment area of the Kashan that catches the chariot forces just at the right time. And Barak and his men are still charging down the hill. So it's not like it's not like the the weather just, you know, miraculously didn't didn't affect these guys, the Israelites, and affected the Canaanites. No, we're told in chapter 4 that the Lord went before Barak. So this great downpour that caused the flash flood occurred before the Israelite hosts made it down into the catchment area. And this flash flood catches the enemy by surprise and completely nullifies the advantage they have um, it's an equivalent of Pharaoh's horses and riders being caught in the Red Sea during the Exodus. So when Barak and his men get there, all they had to do was mop up what little survivors there were. 
and go in pursuit of those that tried to get away, like Sisera. And in verse 22, we read, Then the loud beat, then loud beat the horse's hooves, and the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Now, as I said before, this the, the Hebrew in the song is very ancient, and there's some things that there's difficulty in translating. And this galloping is um, the word darot, but th- and it's, it's repeated, darot, darot, galloping, galloping. So we think, some translators think that's what's going on here, but there's others that say, no, they can't be because there's no cavalry here. It's not like the Israelites are riding horses. It's the, 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 the horses of the Canaanites are attached to the chariots. Uh, so what we're seeing is horses in a frenzy as they're being destroyed in a, in a flash flood. In verse 23, there's this, there's this very interesting and curious curse. Curse morose, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now morose is only mentioned here. We don't know where it is. It's, it's, it's most likely a village because it has inhabitants. Um, but it chooses not to join in in the fight. It's called to the fight. So it's, there's a close proximity to the battlefield is what we understand. Um, so they're very much like Reuben and these other tribes. They, they sit it out. But what's the result? They're cursed by the angel of the Lord for sitting out the fight. This brings us to our last point. Not to act for God is to act Against God. This last verse we, we read, verse 23, provides a stern lesson in this. The kingdom of heaven does not recognize any neutral state or person. When the Lord calls for action against mighty wickedness, those who hold back will find themselves cursed. When Jesus bound the armed strong man in the strong man's own domicile, there were many in the crowd watching him cast out this demon who muttered and grumbled against the Lord. Jesus turned to them and said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Chilling words with eternal consequences. So we as Christians, if we are summoned by the Lord to spiritual battle, and we must recognize, I want, you to, be, I want to be very clear about this. The Christian life is a spiritual battle from day one of us recognizing Christ as our Lord and Savior. And we mustn't turn this into a meaningless allegory. Jesus clearly teaches that this is a matter of life and death. He says in Luke, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. So he's talking about the loss of life here. I don't think, I don't think our Lord's talking about something else. Well, I'm just going to say, you're gonna, you, know, you may lose your life, but, but I'm not, I don't mean that. I mean something. No, we, sh- we, we need not dumb down what are the warnings that our Lord gives us. We need to understand them, accept them. In our current time, there's a very clear dividing line between the truth of God and the lies of Satan. I don't, in, in my lifetime, I've never seen it so clear and pronounced. I think many of you will agree when we consider those who lead our state 
and federal government, those who shape our arts and entertainment, those who write and broadcast in the news media, have set themselves against the truths of God in many, many ways. You all know of what I'm speaking of. I don't have time to lay it all out for you. But it's apparent if you just turn, if you open the news and you see what these people are doing. In effect, we are facing Sisera and 900 chariots of iron. When the might of the federal government is used against decent, loving people who protest the murder of babies, when the federal government uses federal SWAT teams to drag those good people to a federal prison, we are facing 900 chariots of iron. Three decades I have served in law enforcement. I have never in my life feared the federal government like I fear them now. I'll be blunt about it. God save our nation at this time. So, in this day we're in, will there be a time when God calls us to Mount Tabor? I do not know, but perhaps there will be. Will you respond, or will you sit still, whistling for your flocks? That's something we need to think about now. Join me in prayer as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we pray for humility. Father, I just pray that you strip us of the sin of pride, Father. I know I am guilty of it. Father, just take it away from me. Let us not be the center of our own lives. Let us recognize Christ as the center of our life. Father, I give praise for my brothers and my sisters here. Father, I give praise for what I heard from them at the Sunday school hour, Father. They are a blessing to me. They are dear to me, Father. They enrich my experience. They enrich my knowledge of you, Father. And I praise them for that. Father, I pray that you give us courage to stand for Christ. Father, give us wisdom to know what we are to do as times seem to grow more perilous, Father. Let us be a light unto others. Father, it is so easy for us to respond in anger and hate. I know that springs easily from my own heart, Father. Just, I pray that the Holy Spirit guide us, that we may point to you in everything we do, Father, that your will is paramount, that you have history, you have the future well in hand. Father, help us to trust in you. We do trust in you, Father. We pray that that trust be increased this day and this day forward. Father, bless this day as we continue to worship you. Father, keep our focus on you throughout this day and throughout this week. I pray for my brethren here, your beloved, as they go through their week, Father. Keep them safe. Father, guide them, be with them, let them know how greatly they are loved. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.